As we continue our series in The Reason for God, this uh, book that we're loosely basing our sermon series on, tonight we come to this subject of the knowledge of God and what our sense of moral obligation tells us about that. And Romans chapter 2 is a very critical text as we seek to understand this. We're picking up in the middle of Paul's argument in chapters 1 to to 3. He's indicating and showing that we are all without excuse. And here we read about God's work and the sense of knowing God from his uh, law written on our hearts. Let's listen to God's word. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law, who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray for clarity as we seek to understand it. May your spirit accompany your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Does God exist? We've been uh, looking into that question over the last weeks. Many people have wrestled with that over the centuries, and maybe you are wrestling with that question today. Sometimes people say, I would believe in God if there was definite proof that He exists. Tonight, I want to turn that around and respond to any person who has that question with this statement in response. Deep in your heart, you already know that God exists. You may have suppressed that knowledge, 
but it's still there somewhere. And my hope in our time tonight is to show you why you know deep down that God exists, and hopefully to even go beyond that and help you to understand the good news of the gospel, which brings us to a living relationship with God. The first point I want us to see tonight is that our sense of moral obligation clearly points to the existence of God. Our sense within each one of us of moral obligation points to the existence of God. In other words, deep down, we know there is a God. Of course, this isn't the only evidence. Scripture points to creation. It points to many different things, and we have God's written word as well. But tonight, we're thinking about this from what we read here. Basically, I'm saying here, every person on this planet knows in his or her heart that there is a God because there is this sense of right and wrong, a sense of moral obligation. Verses 14 and 15 of our text describe this, and Paul speaks at it as it about it in a sense of a parenthesis here, but it's a very clear point. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, speaking about the written law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. What is the Apostle Paul saying here? Well, in the context of his day with the great division that he describes here between Gentile and Jew, uh, there was this commonality. Even if a Gentile did not have the written law of God, the law of God given by Moses, still the Gentile had what Paul calls here the law written on their hearts. And that's what I'm talking about tonight when I talk about a sense of moral obligation, a sense deep down that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Don't we all know about this even from our earliest memories as children? We know that it's not right to steal. We know it's not right to hit another child. Uh, We know that we should obey and honor our parents. I have a vivid recollection from my early childhood, I must not have been more than three or four, of being with my older sister and her friends who were two years older than me and biting one of them, one of her friends on the arm. And I have a vivid recollection of that because I remember uh, there was no reason that I did did that, true confessions here. It wasn't that anyone was being mean to me, but I hightailed it out of there. I think we were next door and I went and hid in our house somewhere and I was eventually found and punished and got a spanking for that. But even at that young age, immediately when I did that, it was a pretty bad bite, I ran. I knew that I had disobeyed the moral law. Now, in today's modern world, many people have forsaken and turned away from what we might call traditional morality. Many young folks have forsaken that in the areas such as sexual mores, the traditional areas that we would consider right and wrong. But still, even in young folks like that today, there remains a deep-seated sense 
of moral obligation or right and wrong in some areas still. For example, the most sophisticated and anti-religious person probably still believes strongly in what we would call human rights. That something such as genocide is, is absolutely wrong. And they would be morally outraged at various atrocities around the world. But if you press that and ask, well, what's the basis of such a conviction, of such a sense of that is right or wrong, that same person may not be able to say what the basis is. And the reason is that the only true basis for the existence of any absolute standard of right and wrong is the existence of an absolute holy being, God. Tim Keller gives an illustration of what I'm talking about here. He says, a young couple once came to me for some spiritual direction. They didn't believe in much of anything, to quote them. They said, uh, uh, how could they begin to figure out if there even was a God? Keller says, I asked them to tell me about something they felt was really, really wrong. The woman immediately spoke out against practices that marginalized women. I said I agree with her fully since I was a Christian who believed God made all human beings, but I was curious why she thought it was wrong. She responded, women are human beings and human beings have rights. It is wrong to trample on someone's rights. I asked her how she knew that. Puzzled, she said, everyone knows it is wrong to violate the rights of someone. I said, most people in the world don't know that. They don't have a Western view of human rights. Imagine if someone said to you, everyone knows that women are inferior. You'd say, that's not an argument. It's just an assertion. And you'd be right. So let's start again. If there is no God, as you believe, and everyone has just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? Her husband responded, Yes, it is true. We are just bigger-brained animals, but I'd say animals have rights too. You shouldn't trample on their rights either. I asked whether he held animals guilty for violating the rights of other animals if the stronger ones ate the weaker ones. No, I couldn't do that. So he only held human beings guilty if they trampled on the weak. Yes. Why this double standard, I asked. Why did the couple insist that human beings had to be different from animals so that they were not allowed to act as was natural to the rest of the animal world? Why did the couple keep insisting that humans had this great, unique, individual dignity and worth? Why did they believe in human rights? I don't know, the woman said. I guess they are just there, that's all. Keller says, the conversation was much more congenial than this very compressed account conveys. The young couple laughed at the weaknesses of some of their responses, which showed me that they were open to exploration, and that encouraged me to be more pointed than I would ordinarily have been. However, this conversation reveals how our culture differs from all the others that have gone before. People still have strong moral convictions, but unlike people in other times and pl places, they don't have any visible basis for why they find some things to be evil and other things good. 
Interesting, isn't it? Keller's point here is, do you have any sense that there is a right and wrong? And all of us do. All of us have things that we see in the world around us that provoke a sense of moral outrage. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Romans 2, tells a humorous account, and he gives a quote from Al Capone, the famous gangster. And the quote basically is along these lines, Al Capone saying, all I'm trying to do is make people happy by providing them certain things. Why is everybody out to get me? This is someone who murders others, but he's justifying himself and just saying, well, he's really a good guy. You see, we all have a sense of of moral outrage at certain things, and if that is the case, then what this scripture is saying is that deep down we know there is a God. You may not admit it, but you know it. And if, in fact, you try to retain any type of absolute standard of morality, for example, if you cannot bring yourself to say what Hitler did to the Jews was really fine for him, but it's something that I wouldn't do, you know? And in other words, if you cannot say that genocide is culturally relative, then deep down you know there is an absolute right and wrong, and by further taking one step further, you know that there is a God. And if you want to retain some sense of right and wrong, but you don't want there to be a God, then you're really trying to have your cake and eat it too. You can't have it both ways. So my first point here from verses 14 and 15 is that our moral sense of obligation, a sense of right and wrong, points to the existence of God. Secondly, from our text, we learn that the law of God, written on our hearts, makes us without excuse before God. This is really the major point Paul is making here as he builds and builds through chapters 1, 2, and 3. What he's saying is that having the law of God written on our hearts doesn't excuse us. In fact, it brings us to a point before God of being even more without excuse. I'd like us to see three sub-points here with this text, and the first is found in verses 1 to 3, and that is Paul saying, none of us lives up to even our own morality. Isn't that what he's saying in verses 1, 2, and 3? He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? It's almost like driving down the street and having a judgmental attitude toward everyone else who makes any little mistake on the road, but then being blind to the fact that, well, you do the same thing at times. The question here, Paul is addressing... Either the, the, the moral heathen, we would say someone who's heathen in that day, but morally thinking himself superior, or he could be addressing the Jew or both at this point, and then he, eventually in verse 17, he addresses the Jews of that day. But in either case, Paul is taking on any person who claims to have a moral 
a morally superior or self-righteous attitude. Anyone who says in his heart, I know what is right and wrong, and I live up to it. And Paul's point to everyone who tries to make a claim of being without excuse is this. You don't even live up to your own standard of right and wrong, let alone the standard of a holy, righteous God. You judge others about these things, but you do the same thing. Maybe not in the same way that they do it, but you break the same law yourself. It reminds me of some of the fervent proponents of radical environmentalism. And I'm all for uh, taking good care of the earth that God's given us and seeking to be wise in our stewardship of it. But it seems like there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, around and about this. And I'll just mention uh, the uh, politician Al Gore, who wrote the book, so to speak, about all of this. And when it all came out about all of the very large homes that he maintains, and I guess he buys credits somehow, uh, environmental credits to have this, but it seems like a hypocritical thing in my mind to be preaching about wisely being a, a wise steward of this earth and at the same time living in such a way. Of course, uh, maybe none of us live up to the ultimate environmental standard that some people would want us to to live up to. But that's an example from the modern world. What this text is saying, uh, the same is true for each of us apart from Christ. We are bankrupt morally in terms of living up to even our own standards of right or wrong. And, and Paul basically goes on to say here, he describes uh, God's judgment. But isn't this what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? We could look there. I won't turn there right now, but Jesus, you recall, talks about the fact that it was said by them of those of old, thou shalt not murder. And then he applies the standard in even a more spiritual, inward way and says, basically, to be angry at your brother in your heart is to be guilty of breaking this command. Or the same with adultery and lust. You see, Jesus was showing the spiritual and inward intent of the law of God. And just because you don't actually murder someone physically doesn't mean that you've kept the sixth commandment. No. And that is the point that Paul is making here. So this first sub-point is that with um, you and I are, are without excuse because none of us lives up to our own morality. But also, secondly, under this point, none of us lives up to God's perfect standard. And this is what verses 5 through 11 describes. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's this righteous judgment of God that Paul presents here. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? And there's often a question arises in people's minds. Is, is Paul here describing being saved by your good works? No, he's not saying that anyone ultimately can by, be saved by being good enough to please God because we all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul gets to in Romans 3. But he is, I would say, speaking almost theoretically here about how if someone does keep the moral law of God, then they will receive eternal life from God. The problem is no one achieves this. Only Jesus Christ was perfect and kept the moral law of God. So Paul is not saying here, try to do better and you will be saved. Try to do better and be good and God will accept you. No, we have already all all failed. We have already sinned. And the answer we will see soon is Jesus Christ is the way to receive eternal life. He is the one who is perfectly good and he died in our place. But the point here is that all are under God's just judgment. Gentile or Jew, whether you have the written law or whether you have the law written on your heart. We could apply that further and say whether you had a happy childhood or whether you had a tough childhood, whether you uh, are rich or poor, uh, whatever category you might place yourself in to try to uh, get out from under the fact that God's judgment is righteous and true, there is no excuse We all fall short of the glory of God. And so none of us lives up to God's perfect standard. God's judgment is always perfectly just and true. And then the third sub-point here under this, this whole idea of God's judgment is that this judgment will take place when Jesus Christ is revealed and the secrets of our hearts will ultimately be exposed. This is what we're seeing in verse 16 when Paul concludes this section with this truth. This will take place, this judgment will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. In other words, God's judgment is absolutely true. You may be able to act righteous or morally upright in this world and everyone around you may look up to you and think that you're pretty good, but God knows your heart. And Paul is saying, Men's secrets are going to be judged. Their hearts are going to be revealed. A day is coming when you will have to stand before the God who knows you through and through. And for anyone apart from Christ, isn't this a very sobering, solemn thought? When I was in sixth grade, we trick-or-treated on Halloween, and I always would go out with my best friend down the street. And, you know, by sixth grade, you're pretty good at this. You're staying up real late, and we probably came home around 9 or 10 10 o'clock at night by getting as much candy as we possibly could. And we came through the playground of our elementary school. We were in sixth grade still at that school. And we saw other kids there and so forth. We didn't think much about it until the next day when we were called into the principal's office. I had never been called into the principal's office before like that. And I had been in that school all those years. And it was a very sobering thing. Well, it turns out we were called in there because someone had seen us in the schoolyard the night before, and all the windows of the school had been soaped that night. And so we were accused of that, and 
And, you know, I was trembling in my boots, so to speak, as we went there. But he believed us when we told him that we didn't do it. And we did tell him other things that we knew. And apparently they tracked down some other friends of ours who were in seventh grade in junior high down the street. And they spent the day washing the windows of the school. But my point here is that here I was trembling about going to the principal's office. And I, by then, I pretty much had gotten word, the word leaked out that what this was about. And I knew that I hadn't done it. But still, it was a very formidable, formidable idea of going to stand before him. And how much more forbidding the prospect when the scriptures talk about standing before a righteous and just judge, a God who knows the secrets of our hearts as no one else does. This is the judgment Paul speaks about here. Jesus Christ came in humility and lowly service the first time. But interesting, here in verse 16, he says, God will judge the secrets, men's secrets, through Jesus Christ. The Father gives the judgment to the Son, as my gospel declares. Jesus will come again in judgment. For those in Christ, it will mean salvation and glory and eternal life. For those not in Christ, what a dreadful judgment that will be. And this brings me to my final point. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save us from God's judgment on all sin. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. We hear these beautiful Christmas songs being sung and played, and don't they make us just rejoice? rejoice and leap within our hearts that Jesus came. This is a very, a very sobering text to read if it weren't for the fact that Paul is eventually going to get to Romans chapter 3. This is all leading up to the announcement in Romans 3 of the great news about a righteousness apart from law. Paul says in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, and there we're back to that theme, Gentile, Jew, no matter what, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it doesn't end there. The next verse says, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So there's bad news, but there's good news. There's bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ is set in this context of very dark, bleak news. The, the news that we heard this morning, Genesis chapter 3, the terrible fall of mankind into sin. But the good news is that there is a righteousness from God. We don't even live up to our own standard of morality, but Jesus Christ gives a righteousness that is not our own, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that He brings to us as we trust in Him. The truth is, is that we are all without excuse. Our seventh grade friends spent the day bearing the punishment for the crime that they had done, soaping the windows of the school But that was a pretty small crime, and the punishment wasn't that big. We are without excuse, but we can never pay the penalty for our sin against the holy and righteous God. It is too great a debt 
And it is a debt, it is a sin against an infinitely holy God. But that's what the incarnation is all about. God sending his son to rescue sinners like you and me. Yes, the truth is that there is a God. Our moral sense of obligation tells us that. The Bible tells us that. A God who is holy and righteous and just, but also a God who is long-suffering. In fact, we didn't talk much about verse 4, but let me just close reading that to you. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Paul is speaking about the kindness and long-suffering of God. And maybe you have been keeping God at arm's length for some time now, and God has been long-suffering with you. Think about that, that God has been patient with you, and He has spared your life until this day. And He daily blesses you with many things, no matter how hard your life may be or no matter how great suffering it might be, there are many things, many good gifts of God that he brings into your life daily. Please don't waste the opportunity God gives you. Flee to Jesus Christ. Cast yourself upon Jesus Christ in faith. Turn away from any self-righteous hope that you are good enough in and of yourselves, and the Lord Jesus Christ will give you his salvation. Let us pray. Father, we do stand humbly acknowledging before you our inability to save ourselves, our blindness to our own sin, our lack of knowledge of who you really are, and we only dimly see it. And so we come to you with nothing but our sinfulness, and we call upon you through Jesus Christ and what he has done, the fact that he came came to this sin-cursed earth and ultimately went to the cross for us. Our Father, we pray that you would bring that truth home to us in a powerful way, that we might be lifted up on high, rejoicing in what Jesus Christ has done and realizing all the riches of his great salvation. In his name we pray. Amen.